Acts chapter 6, and we're going to start about verse 8 uh, and through 15 is our text today. Um, some of you may have heard of uh, a lady by the name of Wilma Rudolph. Wilma Rudolph uh, was a successful Olympic athlete in the 1960s. But many people probably don't realize her story. It's an interesting story. She was born the 16th of 18 children in her family. That right there says a lot. Um, you know, quite a, a large family. And, you know, she's one of the younger ones. <clears throat> and it was a very poor family in the middle of Tennessee. She was very tiny when she was born. She only weighed four pounds and one ounce. At the age of four years old, she contracted polio and she lost the use of her left leg. The battle with polio left her weakened and she immediately developed chronic pneumonia and scarlet fever. All that at the age of four. I mean, it's, it's, it's unreal. But she survived, and even though she survived those deadly diseases, she spent a lot of her childhood crippled. It was only through years of therapy which her, her mother carried her to on one day a week when she was off from work. And the determination that Wilma had of her own to regain the use of her left leg. She went on as she grew older as a teenager to play in high school, played basketball. And she set the single season record for the most points scored, 803 points in 25 games. Pretty impressive. In 1960, Wilma, she represented the United States in the Olympics, in which it was held in Rome, Italy at that time, and she won three gold medals in the three events which she competed in. And both the 100-meter dash and the 200-meter dash, she finished at least three yards in front of her competitors. Matter of fact, she tied the world record in the 100-meter dash, and she set a new Olympic record in the 200-meter dash. And in the 400-meter relay, as her team was lagging behind, she was able to catch up and win the gold for her team. Now, we think about the circumstances of Wilma Rudolph's life, and we think there's no way she could have done that. From that childhood of weakness, disease, to where she stood above and beyond everybody else. Webster defines circumstances as a fact or event accompanying another. In other words, conditions that are affecting a person. Somebody once said it is not the circumstances that matters, it's your reaction to the circumstances that matter. And I believe in Wilma Rudolph's case that is true. It wasn't the circumstances of her life that took her down. It was what she did with those circumstances and the determination to do something beyond. And as Christians, I don't think we are exempt from circumstances every day. I mean, every day we face and we live and we'll face circumstances that are unpleasant, that are challenging, that seem, you know, formidable against us. Circumstances that cause us to put on our faith in action and, and cause us to draw close to God and, and leading of His Holy Spirit. Two anonymous quotes speak this about circumstances. If circumstances find us in God, we shall find God in all circumstances. And here's another one. Don't look to God through your circumstances. Look at your circumstances through God. 
Sometimes we can think we can't do anything because of who I am or what I've got or what I don't have or my inabilities. But these circumstances of life, they do not define us. We define them. And as Christians, we have to understand that we have something greater in us, and it's the Spirit of God who moves us and motivates us to do things beyond what our circumstances will allow us. So living a life above and beyond the circumstances is what I want to talk about today, coming out of the book of Acts chapter 6. Chuck Sunzall makes a statement about circumstances in a book, uh, Laugh Again, that gave me a title for the, my message there. Uh, he, he talks about people who ask, under circumstances, how could I be anything but grim? To which he replies, what are you doing under the circumstances? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but if Christians live a life that are to be above the circumstances, then it doesn't matter what those circumstances are that we encounter. So I want to present you with some important lessons about living a life above circumstances. The first thing is this, and it's found here in, in this passage of Scripture. We need to use what God gives us to serve Him. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. You see, he was full of grace, God's grace and His power, and as a result of that, he was able to do these wonderful things. But it's not just Stephen. Look what Paul tells, or Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do it as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Him, through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen? Now, I think if we read throughout the New Testament, there's a general biblical principle that is presented here, and that every Christian receives at least one spiritual gift that we may be able to serve the body of Christ. Now, our gifts are all different, and it doesn't matter what they are. I may have one gift that's totally different than yours, but the thing is, each one of us as Christians, we are gifted by the Spirit of God to do things within the body of Christ. Some Christians receive more gifts than others. Our example here is Stephen. Not only is he gifted to do these wonderful, miraculous signs and wonders, but we also know that he, he was given this ability to become a deacon and to have wisdom and administration skills to serve the food around with the Grecian widows that were, were not being taken care of. Now in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the Bible tells us here what the purposes of our gifts are. Why does God give us these special, unique gifts that are for us as a body of Christ? He says this, it's to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And I think that's exactly what we see Stephen doing. He's been giving these wonderful gifts. And earlier on in this chapter, beginning in verses 1 through 7, we find out that he is one of the seven that has been selected out of the church there in Jerusalem to meet the needs of the Hellenistic women that were widows, that, that were being kind of overlooked. And so he had some smarts about him, and we also know that he was filled with the Spirit, and he had wisdom and grace. 
But he's doing more than just that. He's performing these wonderful signs and, and these miracles around the people. And it's drawing the attention to Christ. We also will discover, if you read on in chapter 7, that he also liked to preach and teach, which eventually got him into a little bit of trouble. Well, more than just a little bit of trouble, it cost him his life. Now, the second thing I think we need to understand if we're going to try and live a life that is above and beyond the things that our circumstances might present to us is this. We need to be prepared for God's truth that it's going to upset some people. Some people don't want to hear what the Word of God has to say. It's plain and simple. They don't want to know that they're wrong. Even though they have thought this their entire lives, they don't want to be told that it's wrong. And so when, when people hear that the Word of God and the truth that is presented in it is in conflict with what they honestly believe, then they want to cast it aside, and, and they might get upset with you for trying to say that. I think we see that going on in our society today. People don't like truth when it conflicts with their own values and morality and ideologies. Acts chapter 6, verse 10, 9 and 10 says this, opposition arose. What? We just saw that here in, in verse 8 that, that, that Stephen is doing these wonderful things. He's filled with the grace and the power of the Spirit of God and he's performing miracles and signs and wonders and it's amazing things that's going. But then all of a sudden, as a result of what he's doing, opposition rises up. So opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it were called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, they began to argue with Stephen, but they would not stay, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So, who are these people that are getting all upset? Remember, Stephen is in Jerusalem. There is where the church began. Things are going stronger day by day. More and more people are becoming Christians as a result of the apostles' teaching and going into the temple courts and praying and leading people. And, and, and multitudes are coming because and they're, they're gathering in homes. The church is doing really good. But all of a sudden, some people don't like what they're observing in Stephen's life. And they're not local guys. These are guys that come from different areas. These, these fellows, they're identified as, as members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, who are these people? The freedmen are people such as Paul, formerly known as Saul, who are not from Jerusalem, but from outlying countries and areas, that yet they are Jewish, and they will all come into Jerusalem, partake of some of the holy things that happen within the city at the temple from time to time. They have somehow, either through purchase or doing something good for the Roman government, somehow maybe through their family or whatever, they have earned their freedom and have become Roman citizens. They're no longer just captives like the, the general population of the Jewish people of Israel. And so they've got some freedoms, which is why when Paul was arrested, he asked that he might go and appeal before Caesar, because as a freedman, he has that ability to do that. And so let's look and see where some of these fellows were from. Well, they were from Cyrene. Now, if you understand where Cyrene is, Cyrene is a really important city in northern Africa. It's in what we would call Libya today. All right, It's right there on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it, it is... Um, 
<clears throat> it's a place where there are about 25% of the people in Cyrene, they consider that they were probably Jewish. Some of them would travel to Jerusalem for things like on the day of Pentecost. We recognize there in Acts chapter 2 that there were people from Cyrene who was there. We also know that prior to that, when Jesus was being crucified, and as he was on that road to the cross, and the load was a little too heavy for him to bear, they made a man, Joseph, from Cyrene to pick up the cross and carry it the rest of the way. So this Joseph from Cyrene, he was probably a Jewish man that was there from Cyrene, but he was at the temple, and he was also giving an account of what was going on within the, the crucifixion of Christ. So these people from Cyrene, they're, they're mentioned throughout the Bible. All right. We also understand that they were people from Alexandria. Now that's over again, over in Egypt area, on, on, the, on the southern side of the Mediterranean Sea, north of, of Africa. Uh, Alexandria was a, a, a huge intellectual and cultural community. The library there was astounding. And Alexander the Great is, is, uh, is famous for what he has done in the work in the museums and, and as they attracted some of the greatest scholars in the world, including the, the Greeks and the Jews and the Syrians. Scholars would estimate that probably about 40% of that city was Jewish. We're told that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was created there in Alexandria. They had gathered 72 Jewish scholars who spoke Greek, and they were able to, to translate the, the Old Testament Hebrew into the common language of Greek so that the normal person who didn't speak Hebrew, these Hellenistic Jews, that they might be able to read the Old Testament. It's, it's the southeastern, and then we look at it, it's Cilicia. Now, Cilicia is, is the southeastern part of, of Turkey, around on the, the east and the north side of the Mediterranean Sea. So if you were in Israel, you'd go up north to Turkey, but yet it's kind of in the fold there, uh, and it's a region. It's not a city. Cilicia is, a, is an area. Matter of fact, the, the, the capital of Cilicia was a city called Tarsus, which is where we get Saul from Tarsus. He was one of the freedmen uh, from Tarsus of Cilicia, and he came down to Jerusalem and was a Pharisee down here in Jerusalem now. So we look back at some of these places, and we also see that there was, there was another place of Asia, uh, as they mentioned. That's the northwestern section of our modern-day Turkey. Uh, a lot of times it's referred to as Asia Minor. The seven churches in the book of Revelation are written to these cities up there in this section of Asia in Turkey. All right, so these people, they come in, and they were slaves at one point, or their family history had been slaves or servitude under the Roman government, but they have gotten their freedom somehow. They have received it from whatever way it is, and now as a result of that, these people are speaking out against what's going on with Stephen and his preaching and his miracles and his wonders. Now, you have to understand, when you, when you come out of this slavery, some of these guys, they became teachers themselves, they became business managers. They became prominent people in society because of their freedom. And some of them probably thought they had to prove themselves to the other Jews and look better than others. And, and because of where they lived, it seemed like, if you look at your historical writings, some of the people outside of Jerusalem in that local Judean area, if you were Jewish, they were kind of persecuted a little bit more. 
life was a little bit harder for them. And so when they would come into Jerusalem, these were the people who were very stoic about their faith, and they expected things to go just as written. And now they have uncovered a group of Jews who aren't being Jewish, but they're indicating that somebody else has come here and they're preaching a different truth than what they want to hear. And so now they're going to strike out. So what has upset them is that the teachings that are being said here by Stephen and probably some of the other apostles don't seem to correlate with what they have been taught. But Jesus had a way of doing this as well. Sometimes he would take Scripture and he would give it the real, the real meaning rather than what they had assumed it would be. And he would say things that might upset people who were outside of Jerusalem, such as when he met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he said, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now that kind of statement from Jesus would probably raise a little bit of the hair on the back of the necks of the Pharisees and the scribes. Hey, no, 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 what do you mean? <laughs> Jerusalem is where we're going to worship. And now you're telling me we're not going to worship there in Jerusalem? We're not going to worship up here on Mount Horeb? What are we going to worship? In Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Jesus was leaving the temple and one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones! What magnificent buildings! Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, in, in March when I was in Israel, uh, the stones there at the Wailing Wall, the higher up you got, the smaller they were. And it was based upon different time levels in which the stone wall was, was reconstructed. But even the base stones, the biggest stones there, they, were, they weren't standing on top of each other. They were just crumbled because in 70 A.D. when Rome came in and destroyed the city, they turned every stone over. And there were no structures left in Jerusalem. They had killed over a million people in the city, and the Jews fled everywhere. And there would be a time when the stones of that temple were torn down. And they were. But over the last couple thousand years, they have reconstructed some of the stones. But the temple still is not there, because the temple is here. He resides within us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says this, I tell you, that something greater than the temple is here. And later on in Hebrews, the writer would say this in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, when he's teaching about the ministry of the high priest Jesus. He says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since a new covenant is established on better promises. For there, is, there has been nothing wrong with the first covenant. No place would have been brought, sought for another. But God found fault with the people and He said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And they don't want to hear these things. And so sometimes when truth is spoken, people get upset. And what Stephen is doing as he is speaking, as he is teaching, and as he is leading out through the miraculous signs and wonders, people are getting upset because it goes contrary to what their faith is. They have misinterpreted some of the scriptures that God had presented to them. So now they're getting upset, and opposition begins to arise. 
When people's preconceived notions about right and wrong, religion and authority are challenged, they get upset. It's going on around us today. The Jews misunderstood being what they called the chosen people. They thought they were chosen for special privilege instead of special service. And they believed that God had no use for people other than their ethnicity or their own nationality or their heritage. And so if you weren't Jewish, you were, in essence, worthless. <laughs> and some of the Jews still believe that even today. But that's a misgiving. Now, a worldwide gospel, as Stephen was preaching, would have been unacceptable. Matter of fact, it was so unacceptable that the Sanhedrin decides that they're going to eventually persecute the church and go after those people who are teaching those things. And if you believe it, then they would drag you before the court. They might throw you in jail. They might beat you. Eventually, they might even kill you. Because you cannot teach these things against the Old Testament Scriptures. In our society today, people get upset when what they want to believe is declared to be incompatible with the Word of God. Think about it. People want to believe that certain things in our world, because of their, their belief system, their feelings, their emotions, their understanding, should supersede what God's written word is. And they want to say that this is acceptable when God clearly says that it's not acceptable. Years ago, Rick Warren wrote about a, a, an operating system. He, he, he referred to it as a very popular book. It was written back um, in the 1980s by a man by the name of Thomas Harris. The book was entitled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. I had to read it in college. Uh, and uh, uh, interesting book. But in this book, Harris says that there are four ways that we treat people. All right? Here are the four different ways. One, I'm okay. Oh, no, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. We're both wrong. The second way is this. I'm not okay, but you are okay. The third one is this. I'm okay, but you're not okay. And the final one is, I'm okay, but you're, and you're okay. And then Warren comment, commented about this. He said, the truth of the matter is this. I'm not okay, and you're not okay. But because of Jesus, that's okay. And we really aren't. We're really not okay. We've messed up. We've destroyed things in our life, in our ability to be perfect. It's, it's, it's all a mess. But that's all right. Because Jesus has the ability to accept even those people who just aren't okay. People want to hear that they're okay, however. And so they ignore the fact that their lifestyles, their attitudes, their beliefs are contrary to what Scripture has to say. When we look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they get upset. And then they want to begin to point out your failures and your weaknesses rather than identify their own. And I think in our, they call it our postmodern culture. Postmodern? I think we're modern. But the terminology is we're a postmodern culture today. Why? Because we're beyond what's normal, um, I, I guess is what it comes down to. We have accepted this skewed view of tolerance. 
and, and everybody has to be okay. And the statements are indicative of that thing. Um, and so they, they ask us, why can't you be more tolerant with us? You're just kind of bigoted. Do we hear that word bigoted a lot lately? You're, you're, you're hateful. You're an intolerant. What do you mean when you say that one religion is not as good as another? Buddhists, Hindus, and Islamics, aren't we all going to the same place? How dare you say that homosexuality is an abomination before God? They love to use that word homophobe. You're just afraid of them. Well, that's not the truth. The truth is that God says there are certain standards for life. And when we try to go beyond those standards, or not even try to reach those standards, then we have fallen short. We have missed the mark. We're not living the way He intends us to live. I saw a t-shirt several years ago at Silver Dollar City. The people got all kinds of t-shirts. And on the front it said, I'm, it said uh, I'm okay and you're okay. And on the back of it was a picture of Jesus on the cross, crucified. And it said with a caption then, why did this have to happen? If I'm okay and you're okay, why did he have to die on the cross? I thought, I like that t-shirt. But they weren't selling it there. It was just some guy was walking around with it. You know, if we're all okay and we're all going to get by because of our good looks and our charm and whatever we've got, then we don't need a cross-crucified Savior. Because, hey, we're okay. There are a lot of good people who are going to go to hell simply because they're good. They're not Christ followers. They're not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The third truth is this. I think is when people are upset by the truth, they will do anything to hurt you. When they get upset by the truth, it doesn't matter what's going on. They lose control and they will do anything just to, just to get even, to get back at you, to hurt you, to stop it, to, to ignore whatever they're going to do. And this, this, this sometimes occurs even in our generation. I mean, look what happens here in Acts chapter 6, verse 11 through 14. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Rather than recognizing their own need to change, they go on the attack. They plot and they plan to enter into a conspiratorial relationship to get other people on board with them so they can get this one person with whom they're upset with, to be silenced. They lied. But they did the same thing to Jesus, did they not? They operated in secret. They stirred up the leadership. They misrepresented what Stephen was saying, what he was trying to accomplish. And it happens in our world even today. Just watch the news. I mean, just because they don't 
believe in an individual or an idea or whatever, people will create all kinds of things and they will, everybody does it. You really don't know who to believe anymore. Because people are so sensitive about truth. But you know what? Sadly, it even happens in the church. We can call those people, you know, church terrorists. They like to terrorize the church. They, they just stress it out and they create all kinds of problems. I mean, here's some of these characteristics. They're never happy about anything. There's always something about which they're complaining. They want things to go their way, even if it's unbiblical and harmful to the body of Christ. These type of people, they don't even fight fair. But they want to get it their way, don't they? They're snipers. They use the outside sources uh, to cover up on gossip and downright lies and twisted logic and destroy anyone who teaches the scriptural truth that threatens their comfort zone. And, and they spread little, little things around. They claim that their only goal is to make the church better and to stop things that are harmful. And yet, those type of people tear things up. When people are offended by the truth, they will lie, they will cheat, they will steal. They'll throw temper tantrums. They will boycott things, both businesses, churches, whatever. And they'll be verbally and physically abusive and hostile. Both people of the world and supposedly good church members will also exhibit those tendencies in their behavior. That's because we don't like the truth shining a light on our dark deeds. We don't want to have to change our philosophies. The ultimate goal is total annihilation of the person or persons who would dare say anything that might offend them. Matter of fact, I think they behave like their father the devil is. We're told here in John chapter 8, Jesus simply said to these people, He said, you belong to your father the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. And the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. You catch what he's saying? You know why you are lying when I speak the truth? You don't like to hear it because it upsets you. And you attack me. But can you honestly find a fault in me? You show where I have done something wrong. You show where I have sinned. And we know that they were always trying to find ways to trap him, find ways to get him you know, twisted into something, saying something that they might be able to hold against him, and they could never do it. And they were searching for ways. They were asking him questions. You know, we have those two greatest commandments that we had read earlier about, you know, the, the, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, those two things, it was asked because they were trying to get him to sin. Tell us which is the greatest commandment. And he lays those two out before them, and they're like, oh, well, <laughs> that failed. And so they secretly get together and they figure out ways and plotting and scheming to kill him. Because the truth 
will shed a light on their character. And so they want to silence it. And if silencing you silences it, so be it. Finally, if we're going to live above and beyond the circumstances that we have in life, then we need to allow the light of Jesus to shine through you. That's what we see in verse 15. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, it, if you leave this morning thinking only one thing, this is what I want you to get. Uh, this, this last bit right here. Right? That if we are Christians, then our goal is to live a life that honors Jesus. If I'm going to be a Christian, and the terminology word Christian came about as a result of being Christ-like, if I'm going to be a Christian, then I need to live a life that honors Him. That when people see me, they think of the impact that Jesus has had on my life. And they think of Him. Now, now we see that happening here. I mean, the only way that we can honor Him is by letting our light shine. And if our light shines through us, that demonstrates that we spend a lot of time with Him. Matter of fact, when you, when you go into the book of Exodus chapter 34, we see that Moses would go up and spend time on the mountain with God and he would come down with the stone tablets. And in 34, 29 through 30, it says this, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, he was not aware, did you catch that? He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. There was something different about the countenance of Moses that the people recognized, and they were afraid of him. Now there is something, as, as Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, and they see something about his face, and they recognize there's something about the countenance of his face, that he has a face of an angel. kind of face are you presenting? Earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 4, when Peter and John and the other disciples were confronted by the, the Sanhedrin and they were being judged and told not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore, it said this as they're standing there, they, they knew that these fellows were from Galilee. They were just normal, ordinary men up there in the Galilean region. But it said they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There's something different about these guys. What makes them so unique? I know. They have spent time with Jesus. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we present Him in our character, in our life, in the things that we say and do. When He is the center of our lives, it's evident. People will know that there's a difference. So what do people see when they look at you? Do they see Jesus? On a wall near the entrance to the, to the Alamo in, in San Antonio, we went there a few years back, uh, on a mission trip, stopped there on our way to Mexico. 
but there is this, this one um, portrait with an inscription in it. And this is it. It is of James Butler Bonham. And it says, no picture of him exists. Do you have that, Matthew? Can't tell. There it is. It says, no picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. James Butler Bonham, there was no picture of him, but his nephew looked like him. And so the family says, let's put the nephew's picture there because he looked like him. And people will get an understanding of what he looked like. You've got to see him because he died here. He gave his life. And who is he? No literal portrait of Jesus exists either. But the likeness of the Son who makes us free can be seen in the lives of his true followers. When people see us, if we are living our life in his steps, they'll see Jesus in us. When we allow the light of Christ to shine through our lives, we can live above and beyond the circumstances that surround us. Helen Malicote has written a poem about this very thing. She says, <clears throat> I was regretting the past and fearing the future. Suddenly, my Lord was speaking. My name is I Am, he paused. I waited. He continued. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name was not I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I will be. When you live in this moment, it is not hard. I am here. My name is I am. See, I don't think circumstances matter. Only Christ matters. And I believe that God will do for us what needs to be done at the appropriate time. We just need to stand firm in our faith and move forward to the purpose that He has called us to to make a difference in the lives of other people. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We just need to be faithful. And don't allow the circumstances of your life to dictate your day or your tomorrow or your future. Allow the Spirit of God to use you in whatever way possible to make a difference, not only in your life, but in the lives of others. We're going to have our invitation for you.